Hello from the American Enterprise Institute in Washington, D.C., and welcome to the Campus Exchange Podcast. I'm Jeff Pickering, Director of Academic Programs here at AEI, where we connect college and university students with our nation's leading scholars through conferences, seminars, campus events, and this podcast. We're nearing the end of this season of the Campus Exchange, with summer just around the corner. In June, our academic programs team will turn our focus to our annual AEI Summer Honors Program, where we'll welcome over 200 top undergraduate students from campuses around the United States and the world for week-long seminars here at our think tank. We'll return to this podcast after the summer with new episodes in September. We hope you've enjoyed following along this year, and we've got some exciting things planned for next year, so stay tuned. But today, I'm thrilled to bring you a conversation between economist and AEI visiting scholar Jesus Fernandez Villaverde and Oscar Ortiz discussing the unfolding banking crisis in the United States. Enjoy. Thank you, Jeff. My name is Oscar Ortiz. I am a senior at Abilene Christian University majoring in information systems. Today, I am grateful to be speaking with Jesus Fernandez Villaverde, who is a John H. Macon visiting scholar at the American Enterprise Institute a professor of economics at the University of Pennsylvania, where he directs the Penny Initiative for the Study of Markets and also serves in scholarly roles at several Federal Reserve Banks, the European Central Bank, and the Bank of Spain. Additionally, he is a published writer for the Wall Street Journal, the Financial Times, and The Hill, among other outlets. He holds a Bachelor's of Science from the Catholic Institute of Administration and Business School in Madrid, Spain, and a PhD in economics from the University of Minnesota. Jesus, thanks for joining me. I'll start us off with our first question. So unless you've been living under a rock, we all know about the recent major banking crisis that has happened. What is your outlook for the banking industry over the next several years? Do you see mergers and acquisitions happening between larger and smaller banks like we saw today with JP Morgan? Or what's kind of your insight on that? Well, the banking industry faces um, two fundamental problems. One is more structural, uh, the arrival of fintech and in general the change in the payments landscape has eroded the profit margin of a lot of banks, which means that banking as a business is now way less profitable than it used to be 10 or 20 years ago. And that means that the industry will need to change itself to adapt to the new situation. Exactly how this will work out remains to be seen. The second problem, which is a little bit more in the short run, uh, we have seen a period of increasing interest rates and that has led to a lot of revaluation of assets. So a way to think about the value of an asset is the dividend that this asset is going to generate over time and put in present discounted value using the interest rate. When the interest rate goes up, it means that the value of the asset is lower and banks had Many banks were in quite exposed position in terms of this and their asset structure, and they were quite sensitive to the to the interest rates. Around 2018, 2019, I think there was the belief that the interest rates were going to be low for a very long period, and it turned out to be the case that they have been a little bit, they have gone up a little bit higher and faster than anyone anticipated, and that has led banks uh, to a to a difficult situation. With respect to are we going to see more big banks buying small banks, <laughs> I hope not, because I actually think that the U.S. already suffers from a problem of too much banking concentration. 
And I think that much of that is actually consequence of regulation and not consequence of market forces deciding what is the best structure on the industry. Okay. So I know you mentioned some things as far as kind of like the reasoning why we have seen this banking collapse. Do you see this as more of a risk management problem or a natural repercussion of the current economic environment or maybe some something like both? Yeah, well, it's, it's a little bit of both. So there is this old joke that when the tide goes down, we see who was swimming naked. And well, Silicon Valley Bank uh, was definitely swimming naked. They did something really, really dumb in terms of risk management. Um, I don't have access to the internal documents of the bank, so we don't know how much of it was just pure incompetence versus greediness, trying to take too much risk. But certainly Silicon Valley was uh, doing something wrong. Now, if the interest rates had been uh, low for two, three more years, they may have been able to get away with it. But then suddenly the, the Federal Reserve System starts to increase the interest rates. They have this extremely exposed position in terms in their in their asset structure, in the balance sheet, in terms of their, they basically had way too many bonds. The price of the bonds uh, go down when the interest rates go up. The price of the bond is, is just the inverse of the interest rate. And they basically find themselves that they are insolvent and their business model doesn't make any sense. So it was a little bit of both. Also remember, in the case of Silicon Valley Bank <clears throat> and uh, some of the other banks on the on the West Coast, their business model was directly linked to the tech industry, which, you know, is not a bad business model uh, because certainly I think that Silicon Valley probably provided valuable services in a very specialized industry. But the tech industry is very, very pro-cyclical. When things go well, the tech industry goes up a lot. When things go down, the tech industry also goes down a lot. And had I been the CEO of Silicon Valley Bank, I would have told myself, hey, this is a very good model, a business model, but this is a very risky model. Let's try to be very cautious on how we um, manage our liability, the liability side of our balance sheet. And it really blows up my mind the type of things they did. So again, I don't know if it was pure incompetence or, or greed, but it was it was quite something. This this one is for the textbooks. Yeah, most definitely. So um, as far as kind of economic policy, uh, how do you see this transcending with the Fed changing their their policy on 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 the banking industry? Do you see FDIC insured limits raising? or lower to lower loan to deposit ratios or anything like that? Well, what we have seen is basically the, the, the federal government, either um, directly through the treasury or indirectly through the Federal Reserve System at the FDIC, has told the whole financial system, we are going to take the risk out of revaluations due to changes in interest rate from your balance, from your books, and we are going to take it. Um, I actually think it's a very negative development. Um, a society cannot work if at the end of the day, those who take risk do not pay at least for some of the consequences of those risks when things do not go well. Now, I understood the argument of, look, Silicon Valley Bank um, is you know, running the payrolls of a lot of companies in Silicon Valley, we don't want these companies to go on there, that's fine. But uh, for instance, something we could have done instead of 
backing all the deposits without limit could have been to say, well, we are going to, um, I don't know, provide immediate liquidity for 80% or 90% of the value of those deposits. So these big companies take at least a little bit of a haircut and absorb a little bit of the of the of the losses. But I think it was Rico, this big game uh, gaming company that had like 500 million dollars, according to the reports on the media, in Silicon Valley Bank, and we are making them whole. That doesn't make any sense. There's absolutely no sense whatsoever. And what I thought it was extremely disingenuous in part of uh, on the part of the administration was the statement that this is not going to imply any losses for the taxpayer. And the argument they are making is a little bit devious. Basically, we are buying all these bonds that Silicon Valley hold, and we are going to hold them to maturity. And of course, since those are treasury bonds, they are not going to default. So on paper, there is not going to be any loss, but that's completely the wrong way to look at it, because what you want to think is about the opportunity cost. And the taxpayer is going to have an opportunity cost of holding these bonds for all these years. So that's a cost for the for the for the taxpayer. And just claiming there is not going to be any accounting cost. I personally didn't like that statement and I didn't think it was uh, being very candid with the taxpayers. Mm -hmm. Now, I understand you have a keen interest in the study of AI. And in our case, how do you see AI affecting the financial sector? And do you see avoiding mistakes like the ones we see? Mm. Well, yes and no. So, yes, because uh, artificial intelligence help us to forecast better. Um, for instance, when we are... Uh, let me give you an example of something where um, artificial intelligence works very well. Imagine that we are running a bank and we are going to be given loans. Artificial intelligence is going to help us a lot to forecast um, who is going to pay back these bonds and who is not going to pay back these bonds. Or it helps us a lot to tailor better the interest rates that we charge to different consumers. I was very surprised when I bought my first house many, many years ago. But anyway, I had been an assistant professor already for quite a few years. And during all those years, I have been renting. So I had a quite decent amount of money to put down uh, for my down payment. So it was actually 50% of the price of the house. I also didn't buy anything particularly expensive or fancy. And the fact that they were not giving me a better rate when I was putting down 50% of the price of the house, that when I that had I put only 20%, that to me was absolutely mind-blowing. Because look, if you are putting down 50% of the price of your house, I'm as, as safe as a, as, a, as a mortgage, as a Federal Reserve uh, system. You know, even if I default the next day, you just repossess the house and you have more than enough equity to recover the whole mortgage. Um, so in that sense, artificial intelligence can help you a lot. But no, that's the second part of my answer, because what Silicon Valley was doing was just refusing to hedge their interest rate risk. And remember, artificial intelligence is just a tool that you have as a manager. It's not, you know, it's, it's not that we have a robot like, I don't know, in Terminator, you know, going to the office of, of the CEO and forcing the CEO to, to hedge in the risk. It's just a computer program that is saying, oh, you should hedge the risk. And what Silicon Valley was doing is something that any MBA knew it was wrong. So you don't need a computer to tell you this was wrong. I probably would have known that what they were doing was very, very wrong in my freshman year in college when I took my first accounting class. 
So, you know, uh, artificial intelligence is not going to stop you from doing stupid things if your goal in life is to do something really stupid. Mm -hmm. So for students looking to get into the financial sector, what would be some advice you would give them so they can avoid future banking crises like the one we've seen? Well, I think that if you move into the, the, the banking sector the, or the financial sector in general, what you should remember is one of my favorite lines. Uh, remember, this time is not going to be different. So we have been running uh, financial institutions for at least 5,000 years. I'm actually writing right now a book on that. And we know that 5,000 years ago, there were already financial crises. Okay, so we are going to have financial crisis all the time. We are going to have one every 10 years, 20 years, 30 years. In some sense, it comes with the territory. And if we had a little bit more time, I will try to explain why uh, you cannot really have a financial system without having crisis from time to time. Um, and what you want to understand is that being cautious um, and try to be a little bit more careful that what you thought you should be probably pays off in the long run. Okay, there is a, an expression in Spanish, I'm originally from Spain, that makes the point very, very, very clearly. We used to divide our currency in 20 units of five. So that would be like 100 units. So they were units of five. And the, the saying was, let the last unit of five, the last duro, uh, to, be won, to be earned by someone else. So the idea is, you know, when you get to 95% of the 100 thing that you, you think you can get, let, let someone else get the last 5%. And if you do that, probably you are going to be around for the next 20, 30 years. If you are a little bit greedy and you want to get even the last duro, the last 5%, uh, you may not be around the next time. That's, yeah, that's, that's great advice. So if you were in the current position of overseeing the Treasury Department, what would you do now? Well, again, there is short run and there is long run. In the short run, we have a little bit of a financial crisis unraveling, at least at the level of the mid-sized regional banks. And we need to handle it in a way that on one hand doesn't generate a recession in the US economy, but that protects the taxpayers' money. And I think that at this moment, we are not doing enough to protect the taxpayers' money. In the middle and long run, I will try to rethink the regulatory framework in such a way that we can move to a situation where there is a better balance of risk between taxpayers, shareholders, bondholders, and depositors. Look, at the end of the day, what has happened with Silicon Valley Bank is the following. A regular taxpayer in Cincinnati is actually backing, you know, someone who is making $45,000 a year, is backing with his or her taxes the deposits of Silicon Valley entrepreneurs that had $500 million. These guys were supposed to be the masters of the universe, the smartest and the most sophisticated investors in the world. That doesn't seem to me to agree with a basic principle of equity. So we need to think about, you know, how are we going to move to a system where this person from Cincinnati is not systematically subsidizing someone from Silicon Valley? Now, this is complicated, and I know that if I were the Secretary of the Treasury, not only I will need the backing of the President, I will also need um, a lot of votes in Congress to do it, but at least we need to start having a conversation of how we can move 
to uh, a better balance of risk and how risks are distributed in the US because this I don't think is good for the I don't think it's good for for anyone. I don't think it's good for rich people in the sense that there is going to be more and more unhappiness with uh, markets and with rich people. It's not good for the taxpayer who is not being treated in the right way. And I think we can get a better balance of of interest in society. Mm -hmm. So kind of on more of the, the micro level, as consumers, will we see any repercussions from the banking collapses caused by unrealized losses like continued inflation, a lack of trust in banks, or the shrinking of the entrepreneurial market? My main concern is with inflation. So the the US uh, government keeps adding to its balance more and more debts and more and more commitments. And we know that those commitments will need to be paid in some moment. And we know that there is only three ways in which a government can pay it its commitments or can honor its commitments. One is by taxing more. Two is by partially defaulting on those commitments. And three is by printing more money and generating inflation. And, you know, at this moment, we have a huge shortfall in the federal budget, not just the printed federal budget that we run every year, but in the set of commitments and promises we have made to the future, and the only way this is going to work out because the budget constraint is to be satisfied is through one of those three events, either higher taxes or partial defaults or um, more inflation. And by partial defaults, I'm not saying here that the US is going to default on its treasury bonds, but for instance, the US has promises in terms of uh, social security payments and in terms of Medicare and, you know, especially Medicare is very easy to redefine. You know, we one day we say that we are going to pay for 30 days for you in the hospital. The next day we say we are only going to pay for 10 days. That's just a partial default of the promise. And I foresee that over the next 10, 15 years, we are going to see a combination of those three. And we are already seeing a little bit of inflation, where I think, which I think is quite related with a lot of the commitments that the federal government took since 2020. Mm-hmm. And now for our final question, which we ask all of our guests, what do you know now that you wish you knew when you were in college? <laughs> uh, well, there is a, there is a big uh, point and a little bit of a smaller point, although the smaller point is more important. And the smaller point is, you know, to spend more time with your mom. <laughs> uh, you know, I don't regret a single second every minute I spend with her. Unfortunately, she's not she's not with us anymore. But I regret the days where maybe I went out for to the movies and I didn't spend the night with her. So I will tell everyone, spend some time with your parents. You will really, really, really feel grateful for that when you're a little bit older. More in general, don't waste your time. Um, when you are in college, in high school, you really waste a lot of time doing a lot of things that, believe me, you are not going to remember when you are 35. So all that time that you spent in front of the video game, fine. I mean, I'm not going to say you should never play video games, that you should never watch a stupid shows on TV. Everyone needs to relax a little bit. But when I go back and I think <laughs> how many hours I spent in front of some video games, you know, I wish I had that time back. Yeah. That's great advice. And it hits home with me as an only child to uh, definitely spend more time with my, my parents. So Jesus, thank you for your time.
Chris. Thank you. I hope you enjoyed the conversation. Our vision for equipping and developing student leaders to renew healthy civic engagement on their campuses is rooted in AEI's history and mission. The American Enterprise Institute was established in 1938 and continues today as a community of scholars and supporters dedicated to defending human dignity, expanding human potential, and building a freer and safer world. The work of our scholars and staff advances ideas rooted in our belief in democracy, free enterprise, American strength and global leadership, solidarity with those at the periphery of our society, and a pluralistic entrepreneurial culture. If you want to join us in this effort, visit AEI.org or check out the link in our show notes and be sure to subscribe to this podcast to stay informed of our events and opportunities for students. See you next time. Thank you.